Hello, welcome to Nature Finds a Way, a pop culture podcast where we nerd out about biology facts and fiction in some of our favorite books, movies, and TV shows. I'm Lindsay and she's Sarah and we are marine biologists in recovery and today we are taking our marine biologist degree to use to full effect and talking about Master and Commander with a special guest. Hello. (laughs) Special guest. Returning for the third time. I'm back it's again. Amanda, my sister. Here she Hello, is. Hello, I am Amanda Kinnair, and I am very excited to nerd out not about biology but classical music, which is my thing. <laughs> yeah, we've been planning and, this episode forever, almost. Yeah, a year. because uh, I mean, how many other movies have this much biology and classical music at the same time? I don't think any. I don't know. I'm sure I, I was going to go with none, <laughs> and especially none that are especially none that are appropriate to release around Darwin's birthday. Exactly. So yeah. Darwin's birthday is February 12th. So we thought we would celebrate. He was born in 1809, which I don't know off the top of my head. It's just in these notes because we're going to talk about it in a minute. Um, so he is turning 218. Wow. 12. 12. <laughs> 12. <laughs> no. 12? It's 21 minus know. 9. Oh, God. <laughs> 21 minus 9 is 12. Okay. <laughs> He's turning. None of us were math majors. No, exactly. I only have to count to 4 for Hooray. my degree, so... Oh, he's born on February 12th, and he's turning 212. That's fun. Oh, that's very exciting. 2021. That's a lot of ones and twos. Uh Uh-huh. Anyway, so this is a movie from 2003. Yep. 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 So I know why Amanda and I saw it, and it's because that 2003 was prime. Watch everything that people from Lord of the Rings were in movies. Yep. (laughs) Seeing. (laughs) um, Sarah, do you remember? I think I just watched it because... It was nominated for Oscars, and yeah, it yeah, I, yeah. I don't have like strong memories of watching it the first time. Like, I think I might have watched it and kind of slept through it. Yeah, I think I did too. Two thousand and three was also peak, like my last semester of university. So that was peak taking too many classes and working too many jobs yeah. and not getting enough sleep. <laughs> so <laughs> no time for long yeah. movies about boats. No. Yes. Yeah, so this movie features Pippin. Billy Boyd himself. Mm. Also, two Jarvises, no waiting. <laughs> or both Jarvises, if you want to say that both so Jarvises. far. Both Jarvises. And Russell Crowe playing Russell Crowe. Yeah, basically. Side note, I hate Russell Crowe, I'm sorry. I didn't mind him in yeah, this movie. Yeah, I didn't mind him in but... this. I did appreciate all of the, when I was reading up trivia stuff, that it was just like, yeah, no one liked his attempt at an English accent. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, this is my thing. I'm like, I never really liked him. And now every time I look at him, I just think of him trying to be Javert. And I'm just, I just get mad. Yeah, I was expecting to have those feelings, but I, I felt, I felt good about it. Okay. Well, it's fine. It, which was I've nice. never seen <laughs> his Les Mis, so don't. I think I'm, oh, I've saved don't. myself. Just, yep. Just don't. <laughs> yeah. So this movie takes place in like 1805 i think yeah mm-hmm. it, it said 1805 right at the beginning which i found interesting oh, okay. for some of the pieces that i'm gonna talk about oh. yeah and also some of the stuff we're gonna talk about some of the science stuff too yeah yeah so yeah i guess I, i'll do a quick synopsis because this movie's really long so i'm gonna sort of borrow this synopsis 
not from my brain, but from Wikipedia, because it's complicated. And also, we're not really talking about the plot, but no. it might kind of matter. So Captain Jack Aubrey is on the HMS Surprise. It's a British ship uh, in the Napoleonic Wars, and they're on orders to fight the French privateer ship, the Asheron. They're off the coast of Brazil. The Asheron ambushes them, causes heavy damage, and then they go try to like chase the Asheron, but they're not really good enough. So he ordered the H- orders the HMS Surprise to be refitted at sea and keep chasing them. So then they keep going south. They follow the the Cape Horn, which is like the southern tip of South America, and then they head for the Galapagos Islands. This all seems to take like days, but Mm -hmm. I think would be more like weeks and months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this I think was the part at which I gave up on the book a long time ago. The crew, yeah, there's the main other crew member who has relevance to us is the ship's doctor, who is Maturin which is the Paul Bettany's character. There's a whole bunch of like other crew things, like there's a midshipman that commits suicide and all this uh, stuff that doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, somebody gets shot. Oh yeah, they're trying to shoot an albatross and then they shoot the doctor instead. And so then they take the doctor on shore to rehabilitate and it's the Galapagos. And so he's really excited to look for specimens. Um, they find all kinds of cool animals that we will talk about in great detail they climb the island and they see that the Asherons is hiding on the other side of the island. And then they disguise themselves as a whaling ship with the whalers that they found at some point and go try to like capture the surprise. And then they do sort of capture the Asheron. And there's a big battle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. They capture the Asheron. Yeah. And then they, they sail both of them. And then they realize that they thought that the doc, the French captain had already been killed, but it actually lied to everybody and pretended to be the ship's doctor which I think was setting this up to be a sequel because mm-hmm. there's like eight books and it did really poorly at the box office. So none of that set up matters. And then they played some cool music, the uh, Maturin and Aubrey. And yeah, and then they sail off into the sunrise with, mm-hmm. you know, probably lots of Galapagos collection specimens. And yeah, like way before Darwin was even born. Yeah, anyway, which <laughs> I remember when I... I when we watched this, Lindsay, I remember you getting really angry, being like, "He's not Darwin. He, he, he this was before Darwin. This can't have been happening." And and then it didn't because he had to leave all the specimens behind. And he we had were to like, leave all the specimens yeah, behind. Oh, Don't yeah. worry, Lindsay. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? It's, you know, you go to the Galapagos and you want uh, everything to be correct. It's a very important deal for us. Very important. Before we get into that, I'm just going to say the first mate was played by James Darcy, which rounds out our Jarvis's if anybody was confused. Oh, yes. Yes. Who plays the other Darcy in Agent Carter. So ships and boats and ships and yep. boats. Ships and boats and guns and... Guns and ships and boats and ships. And there's, like, randomly very young children on this ship who yeah, are given a lot of like, responsibility. There's lots of all sorts of things that I'm sure that people who are really into the Napoleonic Wars or people who are really into ships would talk yeah. about. But we are not a ship podcast. That's hard to say <laughs> appropriately. So what we're going to do is we're going to transition right into the soundtrack to this movie. Mm-hmm. Because that's why Amanda's here. Yay! So... Take it away, genius. Yeah, so I remember watching this movie, and uh, I think I was in high school, and I really liked it. And then, like, me and all my friends obsessed over the soundtrack, because we were all band nerds, Mm -hmm. and we were really into classical music. And so I bought it, 
and listen to it over and over and over again. And then actually re-watching it for the podcast, I didn't realize that there's way less music in it than there is on the soundtrack. So uh, Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany play uh, duets a couple of times in the movie. They play uh, violin and cello. And uh, yeah, those were actually only like minute long clips, whereas on the soundtrack, they like play the whole piece. Mm. So I was expecting just a lot more music, I guess, Mm -hmm. when I listened to it or when I watched it this time. But uh, they also have a couple of really great classical pieces uh, throughout, sort of mixed in with the score. So I'm going to talk about a couple of those. The first one that comes in is Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis by Vaughn Williams. So Vaughn Williams was an English composer, and he took this theme by Thomas Tallis, who also was an English composer from the 1600s. 1500s (laughs) and the thomas tallis is the canon canon tallis who i believe so that sounds right who who wrote the song be present at our table lord oh i mean i would have to double check that i don't know for sure but i'm pretty sure because it's from well that's the song we sing at christmas grace (laughs) but it's canon tallis is from the madeline lingle books because there's a Tom Tallis in that, and he was named after Kenan Tallis. Right. That's why I know any of that. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> yeah, so so Thomas Tallis was a uh, Renaissance composer, and then Vaughn Williams in the 20th century took his theme from this English hymn called Why Fumeth and Fight, which I thought was a very cool name. Um, and he <laughs> sort of used that theme and explored it with different variations, which is what we hear when... Um, there's a, a very like upsetting moment when uh, a crew member falls overboard and he's swimming to part of this wreckage and the wreckage is actually, so they're in this big storm and the wreckage is pulling the ship over and they're going to capsize. So they have to cut the wreckage loose. So then the man overboard is going to drown. So they play this really beautiful Vaughn Williams piece as they're like chopping the ropes and uh, this guy is, they're basically watching him die. Um, Yeah. So a very beautiful piece written in 1910. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) oh, But inspired by or based on something that was written in like the 1600s or 1500s. 1500s, yeah. 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 So so whether or not it's like debatable whether that would be, I think it's because it's more associated with the score rather than, you know, part of the plot of the movie. Mm. I think it's probably fine. But every other piece actually is written before the movie is supposed to be set. So I think that's okay. But uh, if anyone is looking... We're hearing it. They're not hearing it. If anyone's looking for really beautiful music to listen to, Ralph Vaughn Williams is an incredible composer. So this piece is very, very good. And then uh, he also has a really great piece called The Lark Ascending, which is like one of my all-time favorites. Very just like huge strings with lots of swelling and violins and Mm. very very good (laughs) so inspiring so that's the the first thing first sort of classical piece that kind of comes into the movie 
Um, but then we get to see uh, Paul Bettany and Russell Crowe play their duet. They play a Mozart violin concerto. They play a really sort of small section from the third movement of Mozart's third violin concerto. It's interesting uh, reading some stuff about the actor's uh, experience playing these instruments. So they, they each trained for three months to learn the violin and the cello. Um, I really enjoyed the story of Russell Crowe. He was like, the props department gave me a heavy German violin to play and it felt all wrong and ill-suited to the more sensitive side of Captain Aubrey's character. So I bought an 1890 <laughs> Milanese violin instead. So, oh my gosh. What a snob. <laughs> and you know, 1890 yeah. violin for a movie set in 1805 is really historically mm -hmm. accurate. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, yep. uh, the best thing I found though is Paul Bettany was asked by Entertainment Weekly how well they did at learning these instruments. And his response is Our fingers are in the right place and our bowing is good, but you wouldn't want to hear the sound we were making. You could follow the tune, <laughs> but it sounds a lot more like you're trying to climb inside a squirrel than I think Mozart had intended. <laughs> Which is just like oh, that's an amazing. Quote. Yeah, very good Paul Bettany line. Like he's so awesome. <laughs> yeah he is so awesome um yeah. yeah so they have this little duet and it's very cool you like you really get the impression that these two characters are very well educated and intelligent and refined yeah and there's a part later i think when uh after uh paul bettany's been shot but they haven't fixed him up yet where russell crowe goes in and is all sad and he's looking and the cello is just leaning up against a chair upright not in a case not in a case on a ship <laughs> yeah and i was like that is the worst way to treat a cello ever yeah. actually that i was gonna ask like how hard would it be do you think to keep those instruments in tune like on a boat where everything's kind of damp and kind of salty yeah you know like i would guess probably not very great um but if you're just a couple of guys having a jam in your cabin then i think it's probably yeah. okay i guess as long as they're in tune with each other it doesn't yeah really matter. exactly oh yeah we were gonna talk about because uh last week when we were watching it was when sea shanties were trending so hard oh, yeah <laughs> and we were watching this i missed that and we were all like oh yeah you missed it but you would have had the same reaction we had of like Everyone's like, oh, sea shanties are so cool. And, and Sarah and I were like, we've been listening to them for 25 years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you ever heard of the Maritimes? Anyway, um, it just made me think of this because they're all like, look, I have my violin and I'm going to pluck it. Ha ha. It's so I'm a sailor. And I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, it's like Bob. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, we're just really big, great big sea stands over here. So you should <laughs> well, go listen to that if you enjoyed the sea shanty TikTok. Well, and then I phenomenon. think there was a couple of songs that the uh, like the sort of lower class sailors on the ship were singing that were very like mm. I think they did yes, Ladies of Spain, which I'm sure great big yeah sea they did do Ladies of Spain has done mm -hmm. well uh, I don't know if they've done it but Quint does it in Jaws that's where I know it from. Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'll talk about just a couple <laughs> other pieces really quickly. Um, there's one other really lovely piece that is, again, sort of part of the score, which is uh, by Corelli, uh, his Concerto Grosso number no. 8. And it's actually his Christmas Concerto, which I didn't know. And uh, the fun fact about this one is it's what I walked down the aisle to at my wedding. <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> so I don't. That's so funny. Yeah, I have like some other info about the piece, but that's kind of the the really the, the highlight point. of how much I loved the soundtrack <laughs> growing up. <laughs> that uh, that's what I chose to walk down the aisle to, and then of course. We, we get to the Galapagos, and they decided to choose uh, Bach's uh, prelude from the unaccompanied cello suite number one in G major. Most popular, most famous piece for cello ever, all time, a thousand percent. It's because it's so good. It is so unbelievably good. <laughs> yeah. uh, like, I had so many emotions just seeing the actual Galapagos because it's been almost, it's been eight and a half years since we've gone. Gosh. Um, but that piece also, there's other emotions because Josh has PTSD and he's, he fell down a <laughs> hole and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And but. like, yep. I, so I, when I was doing a bit of research on this piece, I mean, it's most famously played and performed by Yo-Yo Ma. And actually on the soundtrack, it is Yo-Yo Ma, his, 1983 recording um he's got three different recordings of all of box cello suites and i was watching this video of i was reading an article about yo-yo ma and this piece and i they had a little video of him playing he was outside at some concert in new zealand and he's like in a park and he's miked and the sound is really terrible and even by the end of that i was still like getting choked up because it's still such a beautiful piece (laughs) and yo-yo ma is so good (laughs) i know well so two things that we learned from the west wing weekly so first there's a song exploder episode where richie talks to yo-yo ma because i think he had released a new version or about his piece and his, his about his him playing it and his history with it and it's really good but I highly recommend that one and then the other one this is more for Amanda because she didn't listen to the entire uh, series of West Wing Weekly is when Yo Yo Ma played it for Noel they were concerned and they were going to have him just pretend and then loop him he played it the exact same every single take <laughs> yeah yeah exact same he's like you don't need to do that i'm just gonna do it exactly the same well exactly the same probably one of the reasons why he's so good at it is that was the very first piece he ever learned to play on cello when he was like four when he was four he started learning the cello suites when he was four and like that's when he started performing (laughs) and being his yo-yo ma self so yeah he's been playing it his whole life he recorded it all the suites three separate times um so the most recent one just was a couple of years ago so the first time i think he was just in his early 30s and then he recorded it again when he was in his 40s and then so now he's in his 60s and released i think in 2018 his final recording uh he says of the box cello mm-hmm. suites <laughs> we'll see if we believe him or not yeah that's probably what he was t- talking to rishi about yeah yeah it was it was a cool um it was a really cool episode of song exploder yeah he and he talked a bit about like how he like feels differently about the different recordings mm-hmm. like it's not just re-recording for the sake of re-recording oh, like he's definitely. found new things and you and definitely learn new things yeah. about yourself as a mm-hmm. performer but also just in life like the wisdom that you have at a new age i've found playing pieces that i played 10 and 20 years ago mm-hmm. because i'm that old now uh like <laughs> You started playing clarinet when you were 10, so calm down. Yeah, that was over 20 years ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, you you approach it completely differently, and it means something different to you at that point in your life. So I find it really mm-hmm. cool to listen to different 
recordings of pieces. Uh, similar with um, the Goldberg variations and... Uh, oh, what's his name? Why am I forgetting his name? Um, the Canadian pianist who has a whole school named after him oh. in Toronto. <laughs> Uh, Glenn Gould. I was going to say Gould and then that didn't sound right. Yeah. Glenn, Glenn Gould, Gould. He has a couple of recordings of his, uh, of those pieces yeah. as well. And you can really hear a difference, which is crazy. Mm. So when were the, when were the cello suites yeah. done? I know Bach was 18th century. Yeah, no, much. Uh, so 1720. Yeah. 18th century. Yeah. You're right. 18th century. Yeah. yeah. But what's kind of cool about them is that uh, no one really knew about the cello suites or cared about them until the 1930s. Um, so they were kind of considered like etudes, like studies that you just sort of practice to get better at the cello, but no one would consider performing them. And then uh, Pablo Casals, who's this really famous cellist, he found the the music in a shop a music store in Barcelona when he was 13. And then he like practiced them for his whole life. And in the 1930s uh, made this recording and it just like exploded. And that's why people love the cello suites now. And oh, Yo-Yo so Ma random. even said that like Pablo Casals was his hero. So it's kind of crazy that just one person changed mm-hmm. sort of the entire world of classical music for cello. I wonder if that's yeah. why I know Pablo Casal's name. Probably. Why else would I know? He he in talks about Exploder? him in he talked about him in okay. the in the song Exploder. The yeah. Name sounds randomly familiar to me, and I don't yeah. know why. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so I think what we've gained from this, in the immortal words of Donatello Mas, Yo Yo Ma, rules. exactly. Yes. Yes. He really does. <laughs> um, uh, and they and they chose really a does. very good piece uh, to sort of introduce the Galapagos as oh, like this very beautiful, so wonderful place that they get to go to. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, it was it was pretty great. Yeah. And I think also like not just changing cello music, but like that piece, I mean, partly because of Yo-Yo Ma or almost entirely because of Yo-Yo Ma and the West Wing also is like one of the more famous any oh, yeah. classical pieces. Definitely. Like, it's definitely something yeah. that probably more people would recognize, not necessarily being able to name it because it doesn't mm-hmm. have a name that's like Symphony Number no. 9. No, um, I did find some yeah. trivia thing that was like, oh, they picked this piece, the suite number one in G, because G stands for Galapagos. And I was like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, friend. <laughs> that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness no. so yeah so probably <laughs> after cute, like it's probably after Ode to Joy and Symphony and the Fifth Symphony yeah, yeah and like, like Handel's Messiah yeah like it's yeah it's probably it's one of the ones of like yeah. I know that in terms piece. of non-Christmasy yeah, and classical you get, music especially like yeah. Mozart's uh, Ina Kleine Nacht music the da 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 yeah oh yeah that one yeah. for sure it's everywhere yeah yeah no, like, and I think most people even might not even be able to say who it mm-hmm. is or whatever. But if it's like, have you heard this? A lot of yeah, people would definitely. say yes, even if they mm-hmm. didn't know what it was. It's an interesting yeah. experiment to see if people know. Yeah, I don't know. So biased, like generic so. familiarity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I know really weird ones. Because I did like Suzuki piano. That's all like weird versions of like easy to play classical music. But it doesn't mean it's famous. <laughs> it's just easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, because and then we had a bunch of composer CDs for oh, children. Oh yeah, we had like those Beethoven too. Beethoven lives upstairs. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Bach comes to college. Yeah, I think Mr. Bach comes to 
call and yeah. Mozart's and magic so we had all those. something. Yeah, and then yeah, and Vivaldi, mm-hmm. Tchaikovsky goes to America. Well, it was four seasons. I think is one. Yeah, it was four seasons, but I don't know yeah. what the remember what the story was for Vivaldi. Um, but anyway, so we had those, and then I had a ten year old <laughs> playing clarinet in my house. <laughs> Um, and then, like, running up to me and be like, you should listen to this. Not Elmer. What's that guy's name? It starts with an E-L. Elgar? Elgar. Listen to this Elgar piece. It's so cool. I'm like, wow, I you're mean, a nerd. Elgar but anyway. is very cool. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are cute. He has so much good um, music. You're getting me off topic here if you want to start talking about Elgar. <laughs> we were talking about English no, composers we're about already, so. <laughs> That's we were talking about yeah. Holtz earlier because we were talking about the planets. Yeah. And anyway, we want to talk about being nerds. Let's talk Yay. about the Galapagos. Yes. So Lindsay and I, as well as our other friend Nicole, had the amazing, amazing experience of like eight and a half years ago getting to go to the Galapagos. I'm pretty sure we've talked about it on this podcast, but I'm, or whale or tales. We've definitely talked know. about it on the Whale Tales podcast. Anyways, it was basically the best. And mm-hmm. when traveling is a thing again, highly recommend. Yeah. It's one of those things like we started looking into it, assuming that we would never be able to afford to do it. And we could barely mm-hmm. afford to do it, but like we could. Yep. Um, it was, it's not as like you can go on a more budget friendly trip, uh, or at least you could then. Um, yeah, it was, it was very cool. Oh, it was so cool. Yeah. So the Galapagos Islands are uh, part of the country of Ecuador. They're located basically on the equator, west of South America. And they're a little bit famous. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get to why they're famous in a bit. Let's talk about some of the animals first. Okay. So one of the first animals they see is a blue-fitted booby, which Mm -hmm. um, just goes to show you that biologists are uh, immature nerds also. (laughs) Mm So blue-fitted boobies, there are six... Uh, species in the genus Sula, known as the boobies. Um, they, so bluefin boobies have distinctive bright feet, bright blue feet, which you would probably recognize if you saw any of these birds. Their faces look kind of ridiculous. They look, because of the way that their pupils are, they look pretty cross-eyed and weird. So when you see it from far away, you're like, wow, look at this majestic bird. And then you see it up close and you're like, wow, you look yeah, kind of weird. Like a kind of a goober. Well, I was just, yeah. I was curious, like, where does the word booby come from? It comes from the Spanish word for bobo, which is like stupid, foolish clown. Mm. Also, so it's similar to <laughs> like the dodos. Yeah, yeah, they look yeah. they look silly, and also they're not very good on land because their feet are really big. Yeah. So they're they're really good seabirds and kind of average land birds. Yeah, so they look like if you want to listen to us rant about dodos and how they weren't dumb, you can listen to our <laughs> Ice Age podcast episode, which was just a bunch of rants. So maybe Basically don't. Just <laughs> um, but, yeah. but the blue feet are sexually selected. Um, mm. So and they also have an elaborate mating ritual, which uh, we did get to see. So. Maybe I'll post a photo of that. It's very cool. Um, it's called the booby dance. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so the males lift up their feet and strut up and down, and um, the females just stand there and watch. Then that's how they decide whether or not they want to mate. Sometimes yeah. with the way the birds mate is pretty entertaining a lot of the time. Yeah, and then they just nest in, like, like hollows in the ground. They don't, like, build big nests or anything. Yeah. So, yeah. So, they're very awkward on land, but they swim ridiculously, and they their dive. ability to dive is absolutely 
incredible. Like, there's no way, if you've seen Eagles Hunt or something, it's similar to that, but they're so much smaller, so they're so much faster, and they just, they have their wings spread right, and as soon as they hit the water, they just go super streamlined, and they're so fast. Yes. It's so incredible and hard to describe. And they they if dive. You seen it, but they dive from a huge height. Yeah. Into really really shallow water. Yeah. Like, so that's the difference between like an eagle. Like an eagle will circle and then yeah. dive when it's ready, but boobies just dive. Yeah. They just into go. like two feet of water. Yeah. It was crazy. So did you guys see? Yeah. Oh yeah. We when saw you the, were we saw in the Galapagos. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So one of the things that cool. happens when you go to the Galapagos is you get there and you go to the airport and it's one of those outdoor airports like if you've ever been to Maui or something um obviously much smaller um and you like you're in the airport and you're like oh my god it's a finch and you like get really excited to take a photo and then you go on the bus to the boat and you're standing on the boat and you're like look at the iguanas oh my god and then you're in the Galapagos for 10 days and you see nothing but these famous animals and you start to think something like like are these robots are you guys like planning this basically (laughs) because we would get on (laughs) We would go to go on an island and they'd be like, well, we're going to go to see A, B, and C and we will probably see them and we might see D and if we're lucky we'll see E and F and if we're very, very lucky we'll see this super random G. And then you go and they're like, oh, there's G. Yeah. There, that's right there. And, <laughs> and like, also oh, like, here's this. JKL. <laughs> yeah. And like, oh, here's this and here's that and here's this. And it's. Absolutely okay, would you like to blowing. swim with some penguins? <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, so there's blue-fitted boobies and there's yellow-fitted boobies in the Galapagos, yeah. which are basically the same, mm-hmm. but have yellow feet. Just less blue. So they also see quite a lot of marine iguanas. And so they see them and they recognize them as iguanas. And then somebody points out to the doctor slash naturalist that they're swimming. And he's like, iguanas don't swim. <laughs> and then you look and it's like, oh. There he goes. Yep, this one this does. This one does. <laughs> so yeah, um, marine iguanas are sort of like a blackish, blackish, but they're not like totally solid black. They come in, there's lots and lots of subspecies that have lots of different colors in addition to black. And they swim in the ocean, which is weird. They are endemic to the Galapagos, like a lot of things that we're going to talk about today, which means endemic is like only found in the Galapagos. But yeah, each, almost all the islands have like their own subspecies or population of iguanas uh apparently all the like the first um naturalists that came like even darwin was revolted by the um, animal's appearance what is there's this quote the black lava rocks on the beach are frequented by large two to three feet most disgusting clumsy lizards they are as black as the porous (laughs) rocks over which they crawl and seek their prey from the sea somebody calls them imps of darkness they assuredly well become the land they habitat they inhabit yeah so they have big spines along their back all the way down their tail Um, it's pretty easy to tell between males and females the males have really long spines and these big bony plates on top of their head yeah they're and they they swim, which is super weird. They mostly eat red and green algae in the intertidal zone, which, I mean, iguanas are generally pretty herbivorous. They'll sort of, you know, if there's a bug on something that they want to eat, they won't turn it away. But they mostly eat um, eat plants. So, yeah, they, they just dive into the water and eat algae instead of mm-hmm. leaves. Which, I mean, especially if you look at lots of the islands that we were on, some of them, depending on, like, which side of the island, are quite lush, but some of them are quite... Um, arid yeah and there's not much for iguanas to eat yeah like that lava rock island they they go to the lava rock there and it's basically like you're on going to mordor like it's yeah it's um, super like scrubby yeah and it's not all of the island but it's definitely yeah was that the one that was kind of featured in the movie where they're there and then he climbs up to catch his bird 
That one, yeah. All the black right. moon. But, like, all the islands. Which yeah. is crazy that they were actually allowed to film in the Galapagos. Yeah, I know. So this is a good chance to talk about that. Yeah, they, this was the first, like, production, not a documentary, that was allowed to film in the Galapagos. There's a couple parts of the islands that are not in the national park and, like, that are towns. I was going to say cities, but that's a strong word. Um, <laughs> they're small <laughs> towns, like where the airport is and that kind of thing. So I think they probably were, like adjacent to the national park like somebody mm-hmm. i used to work with did a trip and they were all land-based and they were they kind of like were more self self-guided like we were on a tour and they kind of did their own thing sort of between going on like short boat trips between a few different islands and yeah they, like i think they saw different stuff because they weren't in the national park so they it's like just more people live there oh. right like mm-hmm. yeah so it's not there's... all pristine national park so that was cool but relevant to iguanas there's a scene where they are trying to capture some marine iguanas i'm assuming to take home with them which yeah. gets thwarted but that scene was not filmed even in the galapagos that scene was filmed in baja california with green iguanas that they painted black <laughs> <laughs> they're not yeah. very well yeah it was super you can definitely obvious. tell they look different too like oh, you've been yeah. seeing they look so much smaller yeah. and yeah we're very yep. green yep. for being so green. Black. yeah like if you think of different. like yeah yeah if you think of a normal iguana yeah like they're so much smaller yeah the marine iguanas and then the land iguanas that are on the galapagos which are kind of like a reddish orange red color ombre yeah. kind of thing they are so much like they're so big like the land iguanas are giant mm-hmm. kind of like not actual komodo dragon size but like shape more like that yeah like they're kind and, of like, like their heads they're are just way beefier spikier. oh yeah, yeah. Like, the, they're the like spikes they're on the just, back of their head they're just buff like their yeah. arms and their legs are like raised because they've got big huge thighs right yeah yeah they're climbing all over all the stuff like little dinky normal green iguanas have like spindly yeah. legs and shorter yeah. spines yeah they look totally different but it was pretty <laughs> funny so different i think uh, when i had seen it before i definitely was just like that's a different yeah. type of iguana like <laughs> yeah. there's yeah. no way yeah. that's the same one as before they look completely different but it makes much more sense knowing that now <laughs> but yeah like well, even the but most of the stuff that they filmed on the Galapagos is just the three people yeah because like the part where they're playing cricket and all that that was probably Baja because it was just like generic just like beach a scrubby and, beach yeah yeah but the parts where the, my favorite part was when they went to go see the sea lions and as opposed to any naturalist in the 1800s would just like jump and like let's take this pup and yeah. eat it for dinner and all the stuff they're like let's all three of us crouch down low properly quietly and six feet away from these sea lions like <laughs> Lindsay and sarah animals. had to do because they're protected animals and we're on a tour on a in a national park yeah it was pretty funny definitely <laughs> like, not yeah. typical yeah 18th, 18th century or 1800s naturalist behavior yeah like if you found a screenshot of them doing that and you could put it next to the photo of us doing it. It would look exactly the same. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> so the other big, pun intended, animal is the Galapagos tortoise. They are also endemic. They're native to the seven islands. And they have lifespans of over 100 years. And they can weigh up to 920 pounds. They're real big. They're giant. And yep. there is there was one who hmm. died. I'm trying to find him. George. Right? George. I think so. Lonely George? Lonely George. He died right before, I remember he, right before, right we, got before there. we got there. Yeah. And he... Yeah, I remember hearing he, about that. They think that he was one of the ones that Darwin would have seen. Yeah. yeah. Oh, um, my God. Yeah. So they have, like, their uh, lifespan is huge. And obviously, like, they're... But, like, lots of big tortoises have really long lifespans oh, yeah. as well. Like, it's just... There are other big tortoises, but these ones yeah. are 
even bigger. But when you say it like that, you're like, this tortoise was here when Darwin yeah, I know, was here. You're like, um, what? what? Sounds yeah, a little like bit more fancy. Years old. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. And yeah, they're pretty endangered. They're endangered. And again, they're endemic. But other than that, they're just giant tortoises. Like they don't yeah. have anything special. They just live on these islands. But they're cool. Yeah. And we got to see baby ones in a hatchery. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were super cute. So tiny. Very fun. What else was there? Was there was the flightless cormorant. Oh yeah, the flightless cormorant. That um, Paul Bettany was obsessed with. By. Yeah, yeah, confused and obsessed by. And he then, wanted to go catch it. I want to talk a bit about flightless birds. And then they're cool. Well, and Russell Crowe's. Uh, oh yeah, this funny line joke. where he was like, "The bird's flightless. It'll still be there." <laughs> so before you go into that, oh yeah, I will say like uh, I mentioned it. A name dropped it before, but one of the things that they don't see, maybe maybe because they're coming from um, the water, mm-hmm. is a finch. They do not mention finches at all, which is the most famous part of yeah. Darwin's Galapagos Islands thing. And like, I don't know if it was on purpose, but like I said, like we talked about, this movie takes place in 1805 and Darwin was born in 1809. Yeah. yeah. There were, like... So, not that people can't go to the Galapagos yeah, before just Darwin, his, but... Yeah, his, like, convenient narrative exposition-y revelations about biology were... Yeah. Yeah, Paul Bettany talks a couple... Does have a couple of things, especially with the stick insects, which we're going to mention about adapting and doing yeah. really well so that they and, like, live. Questioning, and... like, the religious parts of things a little bit, which was way before anybody... Well, Mm -hmm. definitely wasn't written down that people felt that way. Oh, yeah. Well, definitely, because that was one of the reasons why Mm -hmm. Darwin doubted himself. Yeah. Was religion. And all of this kind of stuff where, like, they just kind of skirted Mm -hmm. around. And, like, you can't, obviously, even if he was there, they're pretending to be Darwin, you can't look at one finch and be like, look, I figured it out. Yeah. So No, I think it made sense that they didn't do yeah. the finches also because they were mostly on the beaches, right? Yeah, yeah. that's kind of where I was thinking yeah, as well. Yeah, we didn't really see finches <laughs> they're small. on the beach. They're like near the... Yeah. Where are the finches? They're everywhere. They're, yeah. they're like sparrows. They <laughs> are sparrows, basically. They're the size Especially of sparrows. like there's some species that are more rare and more specialized in terms of their habitat but there's some that yeah are literally as common as like sparrows or yeah like when we were in the airport it wasn't just like oh a finch it was like they're like sitting at your the feet crumbs in the, off your snack uh, cafeteria <laughs> yeah eating uh, the crumbs off yes. and you're just like staring at them like this is one of the most important species in the history yeah. of biology and it wants to eat my <laughs> cheetos i mean a bird's a bird a b- is a bird is yeah, a bird. Yeah, they don't know that they're famous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They don't know that they're famous. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so that was like I think before recording we were talking about mm-hmm. when we first watched this and I was very mad about yeah. the time frame and how Paul Bettany couldn't do this because Darwin had to do it, but watching it now, I was like well, you guys are kind of like, look, it's the Galapagos. It's very important. Well, also, like, but we can't Darwin tell you why. Darwin kind of had to know to go there. Yeah. Oh, no, it's, it's nothing to do with no, discovering no. the Galapagos or discovering as a white person well, the no, Galapagos. Discovering sorry. that there's a yeah. lot of biological diversity. Yeah, biodiversity there um, is a whole other thing. And that's definitely a story that people would have mm-hmm. brought back to England yeah. for sure. Yeah, and then, yeah, it's, so it was just a little bit of like, hint, hint, oh. nudge, nudge. <laughs> hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Look maybe at what in... he could have done if he, he hadn't, if Russell Crowe hadn't dragged him off to catch this friendship, yeah, basically. Yeah. But that's okay. The so amazing. are amazing. Um, yeah, so flightless cormorants. I was like, were there flightless cormorants? I don't think we saw these. 
I don't have a strong. I don't think we did either. Like I had to look it up Me to too. see if it That's, was yeah, real. Okay, I'm really glad I'm not the only one. Um, they are pretty rare. So flightless birds are pretty common in mainly in places where there's not a lot of like land based predators. So like New Zealand is really famous for lots of flightless mm-hmm. birds, like kiwi, and they have a flightless parrot and all this stuff. There's also some pretty famous flightless birds that live a little bit south of, well, including the Galapagos. These things called pe- penguins. Penguins. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, so they've Tell obviously like adapted even more. Like they don't have the big wings that look like they could fly. But yeah, so like lots of flightless birds, the flightless cormorant is the largest member of the cormorant family. They can weigh up to five kilos, which is heavy. So it's a good thing they don't fly. Um, yeah, but if... They can't that's fly, why. that's probably... Yeah. yeah, so it's okay for them to get heavier. The the keel, which is like the bone down the middle of their... Like where the two flight muscles on either side connect in the middle, um, is way smaller because that in birds that fly is like a big bone. So there's lots of surface area for muscles to attach to. Yeah, so they are diving birds that walk around and then dive into the water and eat fish and other things that live in the water. Yeah, like basically. penguins. Basically, just more normal bird shape. Like they have the, the squiggly neck like a mm-hmm. cormorant. Yeah. And they're they're even in the same genus as other cormorants. Like they, in terms of evolution, other than the fact that they don't fly, like they're really closely related to other cormorants. Hmm. And it's unlike, I wonder unlike pigeons, why. their feathers aren't waterproof. So they, um, after they dive, they have to dry their wings in the sun. So you'll often see cormorants like with their necks and then their wings out. We see them here all the time hmm. when the sun's out. Yeah, they look like... Yeah, Jack and Rose, <laughs> um, oh. <laughs> and they also and they produce oil for. They have a preen gland, and then they produce oil to help keep their feathers from getting totally waterlogged. Um, yeah, so that's cool. Did you when you said pinge- pigeons? Did you mean did I say pigeons? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was, I was like, what? I just can't talk. <sighs> it's okay. <laughs> I was just trying. I was like, just that entire time, I was like, what? Well, as I, long as you're not calling them pen wings, like Benedict Cumberbatch. Penguin. <laughs> There's another pretty major scene that has a not flightless bird. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Um, actually, one of the more famous flying birds, which would be the albatross. We talked about albatrosses on one of Amanda's other episodes, Rescuers Down Under. Um, very important Very movie. famous <laughs> albatross movie. Yeah. <laughs> but they are real big, and they fly very fast and all of those kinds of things. But I actually wanted to talk a little bit about the myth Mm. of the superstition because they don't actually talk about it in this movie, which is weird because it's in the part of the albatross, they're shooting at it, which is kind of random because it's 1805 and the rhyme of the agent Mariner came out in 1798, Mm. which is all about how if you kill an albatross, you will be forced to wear the dead bird around its neck, your neck. And it's a huge sailor superstition. So when that part happened, I wonder I was if very maybe it hadn't been long enough for it to have been become a superstition. Like these people were super well read. Yeah, that might make sense. Yeah, that's true. Like the people, but I don't know. Like the guy wasn't the guy shooting one of like the oh, he was an officer. Okay, was the, yeah, but maybe it just hadn't sort of caught on that it was a taboo. I don't know. Maybe I don't know I don't which know. came first, like, the poem or the taboo. Because right, like did he yeah, write either. the poem about an existing yeah. taboo? I don't know. Mm, or were they just yeah. really hungry? <laughs> no, because they were oh, really yeah. close to the islands no, at that point. I think they, they were, were shooting it to collect it. Well, I think in the movie it seemed like it was one of those officers who just, you know, was hunting it for mm-hmm. a prize yeah. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's and, kind of how I felt, yeah. Yeah, and being 
an idiot with how he was shooting and then, you know, yeah. shoots the ship's yeah. doctor, which is not a great thing yep. to do. Yeah. Um, so therefore, perpetuating the myth that it's bad luck to shoot yeah. albatross. Yeah, because you're going to kill your doctor. <laughs> which is really what I wanted to say about that. If Albatrosses are cool yeah. uh, and big. Don't shoot them ever, but especially if yeah, you are a, a sailor. Moving ship. <laughs> yeah. On a moving ship with a doctor with right next to you. People walk, walking around and he was like swinging the gun back and forth and just Yeah, like, swinging it back. And like the doctor was like actively looking to try and get yeah. a look at the bird also. But <laughs> like, just... unlike a lot of birds, wouldn't have ever landed on the ship because they don't really do that. They just fly. Exactly. There's another big animal scene, or there's a couple scenes with this animal, where the doctor, Paul Bettany, is showing the kid these stick insects or phasmids and talking about how they, like, camouflage like sticks. And that, I think, is where they talk about, like, did God make this animal like this or not? And then, yes, they Mm -hmm. talk a bit about that. And cool scene. And I think, like, stick insects are a good and easy way to deliver that message, except that there's no stick insects on the Galapagos, as far as I can tell. I found a couple lists. <laughs> One's like a Wikipedia list that's all the animals, but it's incomplete. And then I found another like published article from the 60s that has all the insects of the Galapagos Islands um, listed by insect order, and there are zero in the Galapagos or the British Isles. It's a comparison article. I'm not really sure why. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so random. Yeah. So, yeah, so cool scene, inaccurate. Although, if they'd been in Brazil, there's so many in Brazil. And, yeah, so he could have had them on the ship, and they still could have done the scene. But they did it Mm -hmm. on the island instead. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah, because when the first conversation was about a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were talking. That's when they had the the conversation about it. they found it. Mm-hmm. And then it was like one of the things they were able to bring back when they had yeah. to run back and drop well, all I their think specimens that from the part Gulf. of that might so, have yeah. been because um, the movie was a com- like this book series is a combination of like eight books or something, and mm-hmm. they combined two of the books into one movie. So yeah, and yeah. they because I feel I'm pretty sure I read the book one of the books and there was like an interminable scene of them like in the Tierra del Fuego, which is like the very southern tip of South America, and I just I couldn't. I couldn't keep going. It was too long. No, that's fair. Yeah, like, I think the point, the reason that there's such good science in this movie is because they just yeah, filmed exactly. on the Galapagos. Yeah, they didn't have to try so too hard. They, all they had to do was, like, shoot and look at the animals and be like, look, yeah. that one swims, and that was all. <laughs> but as soon as they were forced to be like, look, a stick insect. That's talked like, about in the book. They're like, well, yeah. we picked it up from, yeah, it's talked about in the book, we picked it up from props, yeah. like, whatever. Well, and the stick insect was also very vital to the plot because that was sort of the whole like oh this animal disguises itself we will disguise our ship as a whaling ship and that's how we Mm -hmm. will spring our trap on the french yeah on the french guys who were like so french i was like you guys just take the cast from (laughs) the three musketeers and so i was keeping a keen eye for music related things in this movie did any of you notice that on the french ship there was a french horn (laughs) i did not but that's delightful (laughs) that was like there's a bunch of sheet music on the ground and he kind of paws at it with his sword and there's like a french horn lying there and i was like they didn't just put that there because it's a French horn, right? Because that's not... <laughs> it was like a baguette and a beret. And there's a mime there. <laughs> just like really, really emphasizing how French these guys are. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, you had to have some way to tell them all the white guys apart. Oh, oh exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, there were just a bunch of white guys on boats. Like, yeah, and then there was one part where I thought of Amanda because they hadn't had any wind and they had cabin fever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> go, which is Muppet a Treasure Island. Great Muppet <laughs> Treasure Island song. I, if they had burst into that song in the middle of that movie, I would have been overjoyed. <laughs> Me too. And if you want to watch a, a movie about a boat, watch that one. So good. Ugh, love it. I haven't seen that movie for so long. But I think that that's all of our animals. I have one more piece to talk about. Mm, Yay. Uh, And that's, it's right at the very end, uh, Paul Bettany and Russell Crowe do another little duet to sort of be like, ha ha ha, things are happy, we're heading off into the sunset, or wait, are we happy? Is the French captain actually still alive? Do we have to go back? That sort of question mark. And then it's like, ha ha ha, we'll play our instruments as we, you don't get to find out. Um, <laughs> so this piece that they play, it's such a fun piece. It's uh, Boccherini, uh, who is an Italian composer, but he was in service to the Spanish court for uh, quite a long time, from 1761 to 1805. Um, oh. So he wrote this piece to make it sound like you're walking down the streets of Madrid. So it's oh. actually called La Musica Noturna della Strada di Madrid. So it's like yeah. the the night music of the streets of Madrid. And then there's this quote from the composer. He's like, this piece is absolutely useless, even ridiculous outside of Spain, because the audience cannot hope to understand its significance, nor the performers to play it as it should be played. It's just like... <laughs> None of you guys will get this because you haven't been to Spain, <laughs> but like, <laughs> it, Spain is really cool, and um, so that is why they play their instruments like guitars. Um, so cool. So they, yeah, play the cello, they turn it on its side, and the violin on its side, and they get to strum an accompaniment while the other one does a bit of soloing, which is pretty cool. Yeah, uh, and there's I some other it. movements to the piece as well that we don't get to hear in the movie, but they're on the soundtrack. Um, so there's like a part where it's supposed to sound like the church bell of the street, and they're supposed to sound like the military walking down and some singers and all that kind of stuff. So he huh. was recreating the streets of Madrid for the Italian court, even though they just couldn't possibly understand. Of course. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Bigger snob than Russell Crowe. Yeah, but uh, it's a really fun piece that to end the movie on, and it's really fun watching them play those instruments that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they looked like yeah. they were having fun. Yeah. yeah, well, they're also really good friends, those two. Cause they're in a bunch. Mm-hmm. Of- yeah, before Russell Crowe met Alan Doyle, and the true friendship really began. Yeah. <laughs> Let's. Well, how many times can I? F- Drop Great Big C into this episode. Let's find out. I think we're at three, so you know. <laughs> I think so. Doing good. <laughs> So fun. Yeah. Fun. Um, oh, I did have one question for you guys, because there's an important mm-hmm. animal that you guys from this movie that you did not talk about, and that is the weevil. Oh, no. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and I love that. Uh, so, it's like know. the only part of this movie I remembered in the, like the 18 years in between watching it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is the lesser of two weevils. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, that's so ridiculous. I don't know. We can talk about weevils. Weevils are beetles that are um, often like to live in grain, which is probably why they were on the ship. Um, Gross. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Flower bugs. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's also a Galapagos beetle, which I didn't actually look up. Was oh yeah. There, there is are. that part true? Um. Hang on. 
You got the list. I do have. I think so. There's lots of insects. There are 200 beetle species in the Galapagos. All right. So, okay. yes. I'm assuming yes. at least some of them are en- endemic. Yeah. Probably. It's hard to be an insect in- and not be endemic on the yeah. Galapagos. Well, unless you fly well. Yeah, like, but you gotta fly butter- real well. There are lots of butterflies that I'm just looking at this list and I know some of like monarchs are found there. Um, mm-hmm. Danaus butterflies, like queen butterflies. But then there's like, yeah, other ones that are endemic. Monarchs um, are found everywhere. Basically. Well, they're really good at flying. I know. Because <laughs> they're big. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that weevil joke made me laugh. And I wrote it in my <laughs> notes. Know. But then it's not really Galapagos rated. No, it's just a silly joke. But I like it. Gross. Well, bugs yeah, on a they ship. had, they had <laughs> yeah. cows and chickens and monkeys oh, on yeah. the ship. Uh, but they did have weevils as well. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and there was lots of monkeys and stuff. They like pull up against this like sailing or trading ship that had like yeah monkeys and parrots and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, at that point they were in Brazil or yeah somewhere, somewhere on the mainland n- yeah. near Brazil. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Lots of generic South America animals, mm-hmm. of which there are lots. Um, yes. Yeah. So that probably brings us to the end of our episode. If you have other Galapagos movies that we can watch and talk about the Galapagos or other questions, you can find us on social media at Nature Finds a Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can check out our website, naturefindsapod.com. And thanks so much to Amanda for joining us. Yay! No problem. Thank you for having me and letting me nerd out about classical music because honestly I uh, just torture my students with it instead <laughs> so now I get to do it for fun which is Yay. much well, better <laughs> if we find another movie that has classical music in it and science we'll let you know because we already did Jaws and yeah. that's the only one I can think of even yeah. though it's not classical music well I'm sure I could whatever. find some stuff about John Williams and wax philosophical and I mean there is Jurassic Park we did Jurassic Park already as well. Of course yeah. we did. What do you think our, the name of our podcast came from? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just saying I wasn't invited to participate in that one and uh, share the lyrics of the main theme of Jurassic Park, which is probably good. Which so? Would you like to share them now? <laughs> no, I'm good. <laughs> They're not appropriate. <laughs> um. Especially if our mother is listening to this podcast. <laughs> Well, there's definitely other John Williams movies we haven't done yet um, that we might be able to sneak in somehow. Yeah, I'm sure we can find uh, some some good biology music uh, intersection again. Famous scores. Yeah. Yeah. Or famous musical scenes. Mm hmm. Yeah, anytime you want me to nerd out about music history, even if you're just like, we're going to have a podcast within a podcast about music (laughs) history. I would be very on board. <laughs> the most famous of all famous podcasts within a podcast. Exactly. <laughs> Adorable. Oh boy. Okay, so we will be back in two weeks with a much less prep required episode. Indeed. We will be watching, I think it's season three, episode 21 or something of CSI, the OG CSI. We're watching. The one where the horse gets shot on the plane. That's, you know, like, who knows episode titles of CSI? Yeah. That's the one we're the watching. One the horse. <laughs> the, the one with the horse and Grissom's there and Greg's there and they do science? Anyway. We'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> um, in the meantime, have a great Darwin's birthday. Yay. Thank you. Yay. Happy birthday. Bye.